0: Today is Sunday, August 25th, 2019. On this day in 1967, George Lincoln Rockwell, the founder of the American Nazi Party, was assassinated by one of his party's former members. Rockwell had devoted his life to growing white supremacy from a fringe group into a mainstream political party. His death marked the end of a crucial moment for the neo-Nazi movement and the beginning of a new chapter that was even more chaotic and violent than the last. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we tell a timely story from true crime history, then analyze the historical impact of that day's events. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm diving into the death of neo-Nazi leader George Lincoln Rockwell. He was a man filled with hate, but killed by someone he had once considered a friend. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Let's go back to Arlington, Virginia on August 25, 1967. Just before noon, A pale blue and white Chevy pulled away from the dilapidated old mansion on what the residents of Arlington called Hatemonger's Hill. A giant swastika flag hung over the building's top floor balcony. It was the headquarters of the National Socialist White People's Party, known until recently as the American Nazi Party. The man driving the Chevy was its leader, 49-year-old George Lincoln Rockwell. On the surface, Rockwell looked like any other clean-cut politician. Neatly trimmed hair, crisp white shirt, and dark slacks. He was rebranding, moving away from the Nazi stormtrooper uniform he used to wear. The outfit alienated too many people. Even his own protege, John Patler, formerly known as John Patsalos. Rockwell was the one who had suggested the name change. He thought it might save the kid some grief from the hardline Nazis in the party. Greeks were technically non-whites by Aryan standards. It's fitting that, in turn, John was the one who suggested they change the name of the group to the more vague National Socialist White People's Party to brush its Aryan roots under the rug. And that, in hindsight was when it all started to fall apart. Rockwell's mind was still wandering as he pulled into the strip mall parking lot, carried his laundry into the Econo wash, and waved to the barber in the shop next door. Even the drudgery of Friday morning chores couldn't give him an illusion of normalcy. The night before, The pot had finally boiled over with Matt Cull, his second-in-command. Cull was a Nazi purist, and he and Rockwell had been sparring about the new direction of the party ever since the name change in January. After a long screaming match, Rockwell had locked Cull and his two sycophants out of their offices and promised that all three of them would be expelled by the week's end. It was a long time coming. He'd tried to turn their minds around, but they could never see the full picture. They couldn't see that white supremacy was never about separating the Germans from the Greeks. It was about one thing and one thing only, consolidating power. So that was why Rockwell was at the Econo Wash, where separating your darks and whites is a simple and uncontroversial task. People were more complicated. People can't be tossed in the wash and given a new name and blanched of their histories. John Patler would always be John Petzalos, and the others would always loathe him for it. John would loathe himself for it, too, The anger and shame were a part of his fabric, hatred and self-hatred woven together like the fibers of a heather-gray sock. Rockwell could remove every swastika from the party headquarters, and it wouldn't change a thing. He dropped a few coins into the washing machine, looked around, and finally realized he'd forgotten the bleach. It was still in the closet back at headquarters. He grabbed his box of laundry soap, told the man behind the counter he'd be back, and headed out the door. Rockwell got into his car and lit his pipe, bracing himself for the chaos he'd walk into when he got back to HQ. After what happened last night, Matt Cull and his cronies would be out for blood. Rockwell lowered the parking brake, but before he could put the keys in the ignition, A shot blasted through the windshield. As he threw his hands up in defense, a cloud of ivory soap flakes danced through the air. He peered through the hole in the glass and saw a figure on the roof of the barbershop staring down the barrel of a rifle. It was John Patler. Another gunshot pierced the windshield. It hit Rockwell right in the heart. The pipe fell from his mouth. The car started to roll backward. Rockwell ducked, crawled across the seat, threw himself out of the passenger's side door. He dragged his body across the pavement, staring up at that face on the roof, taking one last look at the young man he'd created. And then he collapsed in a pool of blood and soap flakes. At 49 years old, George Lincoln Rockwell was dead. Up next, we'll investigate the motives for the assassination and the fallout of the murder. Now, back to the story. In March 1960, 22-year-old John Patsalos joined the newly founded American Nazi Party in Arlington, Virginia. John came from a troubled background. When he was five, his abusive father murdered his mother. He was bound to inherit two things from his father, a streak of anti-Semitism and a tendency toward violence. When he was 16, John was arrested for killing another teen. He was sent to a mental hospital where he was diagnosed with acute paranoia and delusions. At age 19, John joined both the U.S. Marine Corps and the pro-Nazi National Youth League. By the end of the year, he was discharged from the Marines after being arrested at a Nazi rally. He also quit the National Youth League because he felt it wasn't anti-Jewish enough. With nowhere else to turn, John found a supportive father figure in the worst person possible the American Nazi Party's founder, George Lincoln Rockwell. John changed his surname to the more Germanic-sounding Pattler and threw himself into the neo-Nazi movement with full force. But his Greek heritage still drew the ire of some of the group's more hardcore Nazi sympathizers, including Rockwell's second-in-command, Matt Cull he would never really be one of them. Throughout the late 60s, Rockwell tried to capitalize on the racial tensions of the civil rights movement by shifting his party's focus from traditional Nazism to more general anti-Semitism and racism. White power, as he called it, could appeal to a larger base of supporters by including everyone who isn't Jewish or black. In January 1967, at John Patler's suggestion, Rockwell formally renamed the group the National Socialist White People's Party and began phasing out its Nazi symbolism. This caused a major rift within the group. Nazi purists like Matt Cull targeted Patler, blaming his influence for the shift in rhetoric. Meanwhile. Rockwell began to suspect Patler of harboring communist sympathies, which upset his own political ideals. The two became locked in a volatile cycle of arguing, splitting up, and reconciling. By March, 29-year-old Patler was formally expelled from the party for good over their political differences. He spent the next few months alternating between raging against Rockwell and begging for his forgiveness. Just a few days before the assassination, on August 25, 1967, Patler wrote his former mentor a letter that said, quote, I don't think there are two people on earth who think and feel the same way we do. You are a very important part of my life. I need you as much as you need me. Without you, there is no future. After Rockwell's death, Matt Cull assumed the mantle of the party and tried to return to its Nazi roots. However, Cull also had an interest in mysticism. He shaped the political movement into something resembling a New Age religion, losing the interest of many of his cohorts along the way. Multiple factions splintered off, including the National Socialist Party of America, headquartered in Chicago. The once-centralized white supremacy movement began to lose its steam. By 1983, Kull had once again renamed the American Nazi Party to the more mystical-sounding New Order. The mainstream acceptance Rockwell had tried to gain for the movement was, by now, completely dead. John Patler only served eight years for the murder of his former neo-Nazi leader. During his time in prison, he changed his name back to Patsalos, kept his head down, and spent most of his time drawing. After his release in 1975, he became a freelance cartoonist. Now 81 years old, Patsalos lives in New York City and refuses to comment on the assassination. According to his son, he's deeply ashamed of his time in the American Nazi Party and regards it as a period of temporary insanity. However, the octogenarian does still air his white supremacist beliefs on Facebook. As for George Lincoln Rockwell, his hateful rhetoric unfortunately did not die with him. Although the American Nazi Party lost influence after his death, white supremacy in general has never fully disappeared from American culture. More than 50 years after his death, Rockwell remains a revered figure for neo-Nazis and white supremacists throughout the country. But he also stands as an ironic emblem of the dangers of racism. In the end, he became the victim of the very anger and violence he fostered in his own followers. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Today in True Crime is written by Kate Gallagher. I'm Vanessa Richardson.